Hello and welcome to another episode of Warrior Diplomacy. This is your host Aramis Sinki coming to you from Vienna. And today we will talk about nuclear weapons. Again, actually, because last week we were joined by Vanda Proskova, who introduced us into the global perspective to this topic as we talked about the nuclear capabilities of global superpowers, why they consider these weapons crucial, and what the UN is doing to limit nuclear powers. Make sure to check it out if you haven't already. In today's episode, we delve deeper into the heart of one of today's most pressing global concerns as we take more of a regional perspective, Iran's pursuit of nuclear capabilities. We'll uncover the start and the motivations behind its nuclear program and reflect how close the Middle Eastern power has become to acquiring nuclear weapons. And to discuss this topic today, I'm joined by Tanya Meyer. Tanya, how are you? Hi, Aramis. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us in the podcast. Tanya used to study international relations with me at Leiden University. And uh, she's also currently finishing her degree there, where she focused on nuclear non-proliferation, both on a global scale and in U.S. foreign policy. Additionally, she spent one year working at the Austrian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where she worked on the organizational team for the talks to revive the Iran nuclear deal. For more than three months, Tanya witnessed the back and forth between the U.S. and Iran on the nuclear deal firsthand. Most recently, she attended a summer school on nuclear weapons in U.S. grand strategy at the Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C. So, in our first segment, we explore the origins of Iran's nuclear ambitions and why they are still championed by the country until today. But before we get into that, let's first consider what it means to pursue nuclear weapons. Where can we draw the line between the peaceful use of nuclear energy and nuclear weapons programs, Tanya? Yes, that's a fantastic first question. Um, and it's also very, very important when we talk about nuclear non-proliferation. Without going too deep into the technicalities here, there is an inherent dual-use dilemma to nuclear fuel cycle technology. The same technologies that make fuel for nuclear reactors could also produce explosive material that can be used for bombs. Nuclear bombs need a sustained chain reaction, as everybody who's seen Oppenheimer surely knows by now. And for that, they need a critical mass. That's a minimum amount of fissionable material. But in naturally occurring uranium and plutonium, there is not a large enough concentration of those unstable isotopes to power such an explosive chain reaction that you would need for a nuclear weapon. So how then do you transform the uranium and plutonium found in nature into the resources needed to build a nuclear weapon or to power a nuclear power plant? So I'm just going to talk about uranium and plutonium today. There's lots of research done about this topic. Um, there's new things coming out. Not weekly. It's, a, it's an extensive labor process, but there is research done. But I will talk about uranium and plutonium because it is considered the most 
because these are considered the most dangerous resources that could be used to proliferate. So for uranium, the process is called enrichment. So in naturally occurring uranium, the necessary isotope U235 only makes up about 0.7%. But for nuclear fuel, you need uranium with either that concentration up till 20%, but to make nuclear weapons, you need uranium with at least an 80% concentration of U235. Both for weapons and for nuclear fuel, you use the same enrichment technology to increase the U235 concentration, and that is gas centrifuge enrichment. Of course, centrifuges for peaceful use are optimized for low enriched uranium production, but they could also be rearranged to produce highly enriched uranium. For plutonium, the process is a bit different. Um, there's no naturally occurring plutonium-239 anymore, but you can derive it when you reprocess spent nuclear fuel. The proliferation hazard in reprocessing lies in plutonium separation from the spent fuel, leaving it potentially, potentially vulnerable to theft. But even once a state has enough of that material, they still need weapons cores, they still need explosive designs, and they still need means to deploy nuclear weapons like submarines and ballistic missiles. Okay, uh, so quickly summarizing this, states need special technologies to transform, for example, uranium into a nuclear bomb or to use it for nuclear power plants. Now, let's assume that a country like Iran, which has a nuclear power plant, is observed by the international community because it's under suspicion of developing nuclear weapons. How do we know whether Iran is just using uranium for peaceful purposes or um, to build a nuclear bomb? Yeah, that's where it's really hard to draw a clear line. Um, Vanda talked about it last time already. There is a wonderful treaty we have in multilateral diplomacy. It's the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, the NPT. The crux of the treaty, however, is that in Article 4, it declares that a state has the right to peaceful nuclear technologies as long as the state maintains safeguards and does not manufacture nuclear explosives. So what happens is that the NPT neither explicitly includes nor excludes enrichment and reprocessing technologies, meaning that countries can freely interpret whatever they want it to mean. And that's exactly what happened. You have non-nuclear weapon states like Argentina, Brazil, Japan. They have all pursued those technologies while maintaining safeguards on their programs. Now, Iran claims that it wants to be like Japan and also have a peaceful nuclear program, but also work on enrichment and possibly reprocessing. And under the NPT, they are entitled to have that legally. Now, let's get to the start of Iran's nuclear program. When did it start and when did Iran diverge from the peaceful use of uh, nuclear power? I will have to split my answer into two parts here. Um, so let me start off with when Iran launched its nuclear program for peaceful use. That was in the 1950s. It was in cooperation with the US. The US had a program called Adams for Peace um, and Iran, like many other countries, joined it. Iran at the time was governed by Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, and at the time, Iranian and US relations were flourishing. There was this idea in Iran that they wanted to have, I think, 
200 nuclear power plants by 2000. So they were really ambitious and it also meant lots of investment opportunities for the US and Europe. The biggest project and the first one would have been the Buscher nuclear power plant, which was to be constructed in cooperation with West Germany. In 1970, Iran ratified the NPT, which means from now on it was subject to verification measures from the International Atomic Energy Association, the IAEA. They will come up again. They're one of the best institutions we have when it comes to monitoring and verifying compliance. Um, then, of course, 1979 happened, Islamic Revolution took place and Ayatollah Khomeini came into power. Work on Bushehr, the nuclear power plant, stopped completely and the US stopped providing the Tehran Nuclear Research Center with highly enriched fuel. So that marks the end of the first part, so to speak. It is now commonly considered that Iran started pursuing nuclear weapons capabilities in the 80s. So still Islamic Republic under the rule of Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, Iran is at war with Iraq. Iraq uses chemical weapons against Iran and increasingly there's also hostile tensions with Israel and the US. So now Khomeini revisits the idea of a nuclear weapon for Iran. But to do that, they first need to complete the Bushehr nuclear plant. They need international assistance. Russia happily jumps in here. Um, also a new milestone in their relationship. Then secondly, they need technology. Of course, they didn't have any technology to actually produce nuclear weapons to enrich uranium or reprocess plutonium. So they reached out to the nuclear black market, as it was commonly called, the AQ Khan network, which was run by a Pakistani nuclear scientist, and he supplied them with design for gas centrifuges for uranium enrichment. And lastly, the research on all of these technologies increases. And I can well imagine the motivations behind um, having such a nuclear program, given that the hostility to the West were growing, that the situation in the Middle East was quite unstable. But even if we consider that this is the case, there are many countries in the world which would fall into this category. So what were the concrete intentions of Iran? Why did it decide to develop nuclear weapons? See, that's the difficult part. Until today, we don't fully know if the intention of Iran is to actually develop nuclear weapons or to just reach a threshold cap capability. But let me just briefly talk about um, different schools of thoughts here. So some people claim that it's identity politics, nuclear weapons bring pride and prestige. It's an incredible achievement to have them, not only in terms of technology, but also in terms of the powers you're up against. Um, then they can boost regional influence opposite Saudi Arabia. They could also help the regime legitimize its role. The Iranian domestic regime is in a huge crisis, of course. Um, but the point I find most interesting and most convincing is state security. When a state has nuclear weapons, it is able to deter threats. So Iran can say, if you do this to me, I will retaliate with a nuclear weapon. So at the end of the day, it is about state security. Iran was motivated by at least three potential adversaries, also commonly assumed. So that was Iraq, Israel and the US, um, especially the US for many years, not only practiced dual containment against Iran, 
but it also supported groups that were bent on overthrowing the Iranian regime. So Iran saw itself existentially threatened. Then, of course, Iran was accorded a place in the U.S. axis of evil after 9-11. And however legitimate all of these U.S. policies were, they do provide a stable basis for Iran's security concerns and hence a good reason to pursue nuclear weapons. Now that we got the historical and technical aspects covered, let's get into the second block where we will talk about the GCPOA, a nuclear deal meant to contain the nuclear ambitions of Iran. So in this second segment, we will shed a light on a landmark diplomatic initiative to withhold Iran's nuclear ambition. The so-called GCPOA, which stands for Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. As mentioned before, Tanya was part of the organizational team in the negotiation process, and we're very excited to learn more about her inside perspective on this. But before we get into that, Tanya, what was the GCPOA about? So, um, my favorite agreement, uh, let me just first up say, I think that the JCPA was a landmark, it was a miracle, and I think that everything should be done to revive it. Now that that's being said, there is, of course, until today, a huge discussion in the US about the JCPA, if it was a good idea to withdraw a bad idea. Um, so I just wanted to get that out there first and foremost. I think it was a wonderful agreement. Because the idea behind the JCPOA was to restrain the Iranian nuclear program. It was not to completely shut it down, it was to restrain it. First, the plutonium, plutonium pathway was completely closed off. For uranium enrichment, the JCPOA extended Iran's so-called breakout time. So this is the time it would take to enrich enough weapons grade U-235 for a single bomb. To do this, to extend the breakout time, JCPOA did four things. First, it put caps on Iran's uranium stockpile. Second, it reduced the number of centrifuges it could operate. Remember, centrifuges are used for uranium enrichment. Third, it reduced the allowed level of enrichment to 3.67%. So that's well below what you'd need for weapons-grade material. And fourth, it imposed a monitoring and verification mechanism that ensured that Iran would comply. This was mostly done in accord with the IAEA again. What happened here was IAEA inspectors were basically trans transformed from accountants to detectives because with the agreement, they just got so much more power in what they would have insight on. In exchange for all of this, Iran would get sanctions relief worth billions of dollars. The Iranian economy had been starved of more than 100 billion US dollars in revenues in the years prior to 2015. And as part of the JCPOA, the EU, the UN and the US committed to lifting their nuclear-related sanctions on Iran. Which is, in my opinion, a really crucial detail because it's unimaginable how much oil Iran has. I mean, for example, if we think of Saudi Arabia, we think of it as an extremely rich country, especially with the recent news coming in of all the football players being signed by Saudi Arabian clubs. And Iran could have the same amount of money, perhaps also the, the same amount of power. And um, 
this is not the case because there are Western sanctions in place that prevent Iran from selling its oil. So this sanctions relief part of the agreement is, I think, really crucial and interesting. But Tanya, as you've mentioned before, it was quite hard to actually broker this deal. So what was the exact process here? How did um, the Western powers convince Iran to, to step in here? So coming back to your comments earlier, you're absolutely right. Um, the sanctions relief was really the incentive that Iran needed to comply here. Um, it's a huge business and the natural resources that Iran has finally with the JCPOA, they would have been able to sell them on a global market. But coming back to your actual question, it all started back in 2002. Um, I'm going to try and cut this long, complex process as short as possible. It all started back in 2002 um, when an exiled opposition group revealed that Iran was building secret nuclear sites in Iraq, in Iraq and Natanz. The IAEA didn't know about them. The US didn't know about them. But then the group revealed their existence. So then Iran entered into a, a huge conflict with the IAEA until 2006. They went back and forth. Sometimes Iran complied, sometimes they didn't, until in 2006, the IAEA passed on the Iran file to the UN Security Council. Now, that's really where things started moving, because the UN Security Council passed several resolutions. A strict, san a strict sanctions regime followed. And soon Iran showed a willingness to actually discuss possible agreements to restrain their program in exchange for sanctions relief because the sanctions were that harsh. What followed were years of negotiation with the P5. The P5 refers to the permanent five of the UN Security Council. That is China, France, Russia, the UK and the US, plus Germany. Germany was the sixth country negotiating the deal. Um, and in 2013, they reached an interim agreement and that brought more time to have a more comprehensive agreement. And that followed in 2015 with the signature of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or colloquially known as the Iran nuclear deal. President Obama it was behind a lot of this. It was the Obama administration negotiating. And he knew that you cannot get Iran to zero as long as they have competent scientists and the necessary technology. But you can push Iran further away from the bomb. And that's exactly what the JCPOA did. What made it even more important was that it was not a bilateral agreement. It was of a multilateral nature. So that means it was negotiated in a joint process between the world superpowers. The UN agreed to it as well. And also important to note here, in my opinion, is that the negotiations still continued after Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. So at the time, they could still look past all of their differences and their conflicts to reach an agreement on this deal. In addition to that, the JCPOA took advantage of the difficult domestic situation in Iran. You had the hardliners on the one side, they were very much in favor of Iranian nukes destroying Israel, opposing the US. But what the JCPOA did was it empowered their opposition. It empowered the Ura Iranian moderates who valued economic growth and reform over nuclear weapons. Until today, there is no consensus in Iran if they want nuclear weapons or not. And I think it's also important to note here that back in the mid-1990s, Ayatollah Khamenei, 
issued an oral fatwa against nuclear weapons. Um, and until today, he maintains that Iran would never want nuclear arms because of its relig religious beliefs. And I think that's also such a fascinating and interesting case, because here sanctions actually worked. And in many cases, political commentators like to say, ah, yeah, sanctions, they don't work. But in this case, sanctions were used to get Iran to work in a certain direction. And the sanctions were used to, to later get this um, GCPOA deal done. And it actually empowered um, a special part of the leadership or of the elite, which was uh, in favor of the countries issuing the sanctions. So I think that's really an interesting case. Let's get to the year 2018. And we discussed it before. Until then, so many resources were invested to, to close the Iran deal, which was eventually successful. But then U.S. President Donald Trump suspended the deal. So why did he actually do that? You earlier mentioned that there are several opinions in the United States and it's quite controversial. And what happened ever since? Yes. Um, again, I fully agree with your point here. Um, the JCPOA is a great example of many things that happen when you employ good diplomacy. And the sanctions relief worked not only during the negotiations as the carrot in the sticks and carrots approach, but it also would have worked once the JCPA was signed and implemented. But then Trump came along. Um, he wanted the US to get out of the deal for several reasons. Um, the first one is that it was, of course, the Obama administration's legacy. And it's nothing new in US foreign policy that the new incoming administration wants to, well, destroy whatever the previous administration had achieved. Um, especially Trump, he saw the Iran deal as a huge error. He called it a weak deal and a bad deal. And there are reasons why he would call it that. Um, the, the Iran nuclear deal, as critics like to point out, was very permissive. So Iran was still allowed to enrich uranium, even though it was only allowed to enrich it to 3.67%. Um, and also the deal did not address any of Iran's other troubling activities, like supporting terrorist groups or its ballistic missile program. So that was one of the reasons. It was just a, the Obama administration's legacy that he wanted to see shredded. Then he also had hawkish advisors join his team. Um, around the time when he withdrew, he had replaced two of his innermost circle with known Iran hawks. So they had been basically advertising to go to war with Iran for quite some time. And then lastly, which is also a reason that you find in literature, is that Trump wanted to pivot towards Netanyahu's Israel. So those were the reasons for Trump leaving the JCPOA. Um, in 2018, in January, he first gave a notice that the EU and the E3 would have a four-month timeline by which the deal had to be fixed. Otherwise, the US would withdraw. There was lots of conversation happening, of course, um, but Trump was still not happy with the progress that was being made. So in May 2018, Trump announced that the US would withdraw from the JCPOA. What instead happened over the next few months after that was that the administration would reimpose sanctions as part of their max maximum pressure strategy. Of course, here it's not a surprise that Iran was humiliated and deeply concerned. Um, they gave it a year 
And then after a year, they decided that they would also stop complying with the deal. So from 2015 to 2019, Iran would have complied. And then after a year of waiting, they didn't anymore. They um, decided to stop complying with the IAEA verification mechanisms. And they also started enriching uranium beyond 3.67%. And now that Donald Trump is gone, how have things developed under the current U.S. President Joe Biden? So from what I've heard, and I only recently heard this when I was at the nuclear summer school, the Biden administration was surprisingly really fast in pursuing nuclear talks with Iran. President Biden took office in January 2021, and his staff had allegedly reached out to the EU and other negotiating parties by February. So within, within the first 30 days in office, um, Joe Biden had said that the U.S. would return to the deal if Iran came back into compliance as well. But of course, we need to be aware that the situation has changed drastically since 2015. The talks that I witnessed and the talks that I helped organize were part of this effort to revive the deal. And in the two and a half years since the Biden administration took over, the progress of the talks has been fluctuating. What I helped organize were around seven and eight from late November 2021 to early March 22, and a quick flare up just before I left to go study at Leiden University in August 22. I think that's a perfect moment to bring in your personal experiences during the negotiations. What was your overall impression of the process to restore the nuclear deal? So at the time, I was doing a one-year traineeship at the Austrian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, I was lucky enough to be in the unit that was working on international conferences and state visits and everything that had to do with the Austrian government hosting international negotiations. We organized lots of things and the Iran nuclear talks were one of them and also the most encompassing task we had. I am not sure how much I am able to disclose, of course, um, but what I can say is that my first reaction to going into the hotels where the negotiations took place was just, I was stunned. It was so glamorous. It, the gravitas of what was happening around me was just breathtaking. The Iran nuclear talks in Vienna happened in two five-star hotels in the innermost district. The two hotels are five meters from each other. Um, which was very convenient and necessary because what also happened in the talks to revive the deal is that Iran and the US did not want to negotiate with each other directly. So instead, you had the remainder of the P5, so China, Russia, the UK and France, plus Germany, plus the EU, going back and forth. So in one hotel, the Iranian delegation would be sitting, they would negotiate, then the EU, everybody else would pack their bags, go into the other hotel and then report to the Americans what the Iranians had said. And this would happen back and forth for three months. Um, but of course, beyond that, there was also such a big logistical challenge behind that. Um, we had the Iranian, one of the Iranian deputy foreign ministers in Vienna for three months. So, of course, there's a lot of security to be arranged, police. Um, beyond that, you also need to know what they want to eat if there's any allergies. This might sound um, laughable now, but at the time, it is, of course, really necessary to know all of these things. Um, but beyond that, the biggest challenges at the time 
when they negotiated in person in Vienna was that Iran still had its biggest challenges at the time in Vienna when they negotiated the revival of the deal were two things. So first, it was crucial for the P5 plus one to have the IAEA reinstall its monitoring equipment. But there were a lot of questions about the details of this. So you would have cameras in the enrichment facilities, but who would have access to these cameras? Who would be allowed to look at them? All of that. And then the second one was that as part of Trump's maximum pressure strategy, they had designated the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a foreign terrorist organization. Now, this is relevant as well, because the Revolutionary Guards are part of the Iranian Armed Forces. And under US law, they are considered a terrorist organization. One thing that I would also like to stress is that the negotiations I saw in Vienna were only what was happening on the surface, I think. It was the grandeur of the hotels they were in. Um, you had journalists camping outside for three months. But I think we should not underestimate the importance of the back channel here. For sure, there were back channel negotiations going on as well. We assume they happened and still happen to this day in Oman. Um, and the talks in Oman are very different. The US and Iran talk directly with each other. Um, and it's also informal and it's closed door talks. So there's basically nothing conveyed to the media about them. <laughs> International relations is so funny or, or complex. Like on one hand, they have their official talks where they're not even talking to each other and you have all kinds of logistics involved. And then on the other hand, they just have their secret talks in Oman <laughs> where they just face each other. It's odd, right? And it's also, you just think, why as the Austrian government, at least that's what I thought at the time, why are we still so eager <laughs> on hosting them when we know, well, what they're just, I mean, of course we don't know, but we assumed, oh, whatever they're discussing here is done to please the press and the international media, whereas the actual juicy stuff is negotiated in the Middle East. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But the Austrian politicians, they get the nice pictures and, and everything. I think that it certainly has also some advantages for them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Also, when it comes to being a good host state, right, we have 52 international organizations in Vienna, the IAEA, actually one of them. Um, so, of course, I see the appeal of hosting these talks. It is very prestigious. Now, for the final segment, we will go into the future developments. Now, as promised before the sound, our final segment takes a forward-looking approach, probing into the future of Iran's nuclear aspirations. First of all, Tanya, what do you think? Will the GCPOA be restored? That's a hard one. I hope it will be. But um, leaving behind my own beliefs now, I want to talk about the scholarly opinion about this. Of course, in many supporters' opinions, the JCPA was a miracle, it was a Hercules task, and it was a milestone in nuclear non-proliferation. The goal, as I said, was not to completely dismantle the Iranian nuclear program, but to restrain it. And that was a compromise that both sides could live with. Iran was in compliance, and I don't know if the damage done by the Trump administration is reversible. But I do know that entering into a serious and constructive dialogue is the least the Biden administration can do. And it is doing that already. Beyond that, the revitalization depends not only on the US, 
but also on Iran. It is also crucial to know, I think, that in 2020, a new Iranian president was elected and his policies towards the West and towards the Iran nuclear deal were a lot more in accordance with the hardliners' opinions. So that also made the entire negotiation landscape a lot more difficult. Right now, I think Iran is in no great hurry. Um, there are now, however, rumors about an informal agreement to prevent further escalation of the conflict. And even an informal agreement would be a victory already. And in the meantime, of course, Iran was not observed um, under the GCPOA legislation or regulation, right? Yes, that's the thing as well. They completely dismantled the IEA monitoring mechanism. Um, there is very little that the IEA as of today knows. But as I am aware, they only dismantled the cameras, at least, in the enrichment facilities in June of 2020 or 21. So for quite some time after the Trump administration withdrew, the IAEA still at least roughly knew what was happening. And I think that even to some extent, IAEA inspections are allowed into Iran even today, because of course, Iran still has civilian nuclear energy programs and the IAEA is allowed to investigate those. Interesting. So we can say that there is some limited capacity to develop nuclear weapons especially uh, due to the actions of Donald Trump. Now, how close do you think the, the Middle Eastern country is to having nuclear bombs? So this is a hard one again, um, because to develop nuclear weapons, a country needs to mobilize an incredible amount of resources. If a state does not want to go all out, it is possible to develop a bomb option. Now, in the theory, this is called hedging. Iran is considered to be a hedger, and for a hedger, it's easier to weaponize if necessary. So that means a country that's hedging would have all of the technologies, all of the capabilities, but they don't go all out. They don't pursue a nuclear threshold. So if you would ask a hedger, hey, do you want nuclear weapons? They'd probably say, mm, not now, but not never. So the goal for Iran probably is to have the capabilities to reduce their breakout time. And if the political choice to develop a weapon is made, they can be fast about it. Now, getting to the, to the real actual capabilities, how, how far do you think Iran's program is? So, again, that is hard to say. As I mentioned earlier, the IEA lost knowledge of the essential elements of Iran's program. That fortunately only happened either 2020 or 2021, I unfortunately can't remember now, but up until then, the, the IEA knew very well what Iran was doing. What we do know for sure is that Iran has installed more and better centrifuges. So that means they can speed up the enrichment progress. If Iran were to use all of its resources, it is estimated that they would have enough fissile material for one weapon within a month. But again, remember this means that there is political will behind that decision. Back in February, the IAEA found uranium particles enriched to 83.7%. That was quite the shock to the media and because that is getting very, very close to weapons grade fissile material. But even below that, with 83.7% uranium, you can already build a bomb. But as I said, you need more to make a nuclear weapon than just the fissile material and also the political will to assemble everything. 
even if Iran had all of these capabilities already, I think they would stop short of ever testing a weapon. I think Iran is aware of the consequences that would have. Very interesting, especially that in theory, it just takes them one month to, to develop these weapons. Um, but on the other hand, of course, as you mentioned, we would not expect them to test them. So that's also hard. How how feasible is a threat if they haven't even tested it yet? Exactly. That's also what Japan is going for now. Japan is, of course, under the security umbrella of the U.S., so Japan would not need its own nuclear deterrent in theory. Um, but still, Iran is also, in the theory, considered a hedging state because they would have all of these capabilities at the ready and all it needs is just the political will behind it. But just, I think what's also important to keep in mind here is that the consequences would be grave even if Iran is a nuclear threshold state. Um, Israel has been very vocal about this. The US is also not very happy about this. Um, so there's really no clear way out of this. And Israel is also a so-called hedging state, right? Because we kind of all know that Israel has nuclear weapons, but they're not officially admitting it. See, the thing with Israel is they are considered a state that has nuclear weapons. So even though Israel was a hedger for quite some time, then they hit their program, then they pursued it under the shelter of the US. Um, Israel is actually considered one of the nuclear weapon states today. And I think with that, I'd like to also say something to that is relevant when you study nuclear proliferation. You don't have a lot of data about this. You basically have three numbers that are relevant. Two, nine and zero. Two is the number of nuclear bombs that was ever dropped in combat. That is Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nine is the number of nuclear weapon states you have. So that's the P5 of the UN Security Council, plus India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. And then zero, the last number, is the number of thermonuclear wars we've had. And that's what you study when you study nuclear proliferation. And I think this is also important to keep in mind, because as threatening as Iran might be seen, if you would have told anybody 30 years ago that there's only nine states with nuclear weapons, they would have been surprised. People back then thought by 2023, for sure, 30 countries would have nuclear weapons. Now, we talked a lot about those theoretical agreements and how they prevented Iran from doing certain things. But in the end, can we actually prevent Iran from acquiring and using nuclear weapons? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that any country could prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons once Iran has made the political and intentional decision that it wants them. But until today, a part of the Iranian regime claims that they don't even want nuclear weapons. Israel does not believe that, and neither does the US, or at least the hardliners in the US. Um, that's also why we've seen all of these covert operations carried out by, by Israel, like computer viruses and assassinations of key Iranian scientists. So Israel, interestingly, chose a very different approach. Um, but in 2013, they were asked by the US to please stop those covert operations because they make negotiating really difficult. Um, and ever since then, there's only been the economic sanctions from the West and also carried by the UN. But yeah, I think there's very little you can do other than engage in diplomacy. The international arena can just stay involved with them and hope that the negotiations stay respectful, 
constructive and hopefully soon yield a positive result and a new deal. Yeah, so so as a final question or maybe also final statement, we can say that the GCPOA is still important even though we cannot prevent Iran from developing nuclear bombs because with this agreement we're more likely to detect them and we also have the clear incentives for Iran that if something happens we put the sanctions on again and then they they have this economic hit so when they're in the agreement you have a certain expectation economic expectation for example that um, Iran will not decide to to build or use nuclear bombs absolutely and i think even beyond the economic perspective the jcpa was just such a great deal because it was the prime example of what you can achieve when you negotiate properly and when both sides find a compromise. Of course, the deal wasn't perfect. Um, it had lots of flaws, and the, as the critics like to point out. But for what it was and for what the history of nuclear non-proliferation has been, it was quite the miracle, really. And I think that the JCPA will not be revived the way it was in 2015. But I think if there is mutual goodwill on both sides, they could reach an informal agreement that would at least restrain Iran in some way again in exchange for sanctions relief that they so direly need. Yeah, it's so interesting. You could achieve so many great things like Iran not having nuclear weapons, which is great for international security and stability. You could have sanctions lifted, which is great for, for the people of Iran. Um, you have lots of people living in poverty in Iran, of course, and everything could be achieved with politics. That's just the, the one one needed thing that that's missing here. So I think we will we need to make sure to to keep on looking at this conflict, and I think that um, the next U.S. elections will be decisive here. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, I think so too. The Biden administration is already on a good way. Um, I kind of forgot to say that earlier as well. The third issue at the Iran nuclear talks was what happens if Trump comes back? What happens if in 2024, a new Republican candidate um, who is very much against the nuclear deal? And one of the things that Iran was pushing for at the time was they wanted to have written agreement from the US that they would not just bail out again. <laughs> and I think that that is also one of the crucial things that has made it so difficult until now to actually have a new agreement because Iran keeps pushing for this. And rightfully so. It's really hard negotiating with a country when you know everything they say is only going to be true for the next four years. And beyond that, it's just the will of the one person in the White House. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. The, the American president has a lot of power. We come to that conclusion a lot of times here at Warrior Diplomacy. And, <laughs> and another conclusion for me is that um, we should definitely keep looking at uh, this issue at the Iran nuclear deal. There's so much potential here. Tanya, thank you very much for being our guest today. And thank you to our dear listeners for tuning in and see you next time. And just a little post-production note from my side. When referring to the Iran deal during the episode, I always said GCPOA instead of JCPOA. I hope that did not cause any confusion. That was just my German brain somehow messing around with the English letters. However, 
I meant GCPOA. No, JCPOA. You <laughs> see, it's hard for me. But anyways, now that I've cleared this up and we all know that it's called JCPOA, we can finally wrap it up here. Goodbye and thank you for listening.